Welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. Today, I'm joined by Beth H. Piatote. She's Assistant Professor of Native American Studies and Ethnic Studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and she's just published a phenomenal new book, called Domestic Subjects, Gender, Citizenship, and Law in Native American Literature from Yale University Press. I really enjoyed this discussion, not only because Beth introduced me to a host of Native authors from an era of aggressive assimilation, people like Pauline Johnson, Alice Callahan, John Oskison, but also for her deeply incisive analysis about what made these figures uh, particularly dynamic and courageous. I hope you enjoy it as well. Beth Piatote, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. Thanks for being with me. Thank you, Andrew. It's really a pleasure. Yeah, no problem. So um, congratulations, uh, not only for this really eloquent and provocative new book, but also uh, for being the first to publish with Yale University Press's Henry Rowe Cloud series on American Indians and modernity. Uh, Your book is called Domestic Subjects, Gender, Citizenship, and Law in Native American Literature. And uh, if it's any indication of what we can expect from uh, the Henry Rowe Cloud series, uh, they're very exciting things to come. Before we dive into your book, I want to start by asking you to introduce yourself and talk a bit about your path to this project. Okay, thank you, Andrew. I I do want to start by acknowledging uh, Yale University Press and particularly the visionary efforts of um, Professor Ned Blackhawk and the head of the press, um, Christopher Rogers, in establishing this new series. So you asked um, how I came to this project. Well, part of it is a personal background. Um, from my mother's side, I'm Nez Perce. I'm enrolled in the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation in eastern Washington. I grew up in Idaho, and uh, my dad's family is actually German Mennonite background. So I grew up on a farm in Idaho, and then I ended up going to a Mennonite college in, in Kansas. And um, I was a history major in college, and I think throughout my life I've always been really interested in history and the material conditions under which people are able to um, express themselves and uh, the limits on what people can say and do in any given historical moment. And, um, you know, part of my attention to the material world then played out in my first job after I I, um, did my undergraduate in that I worked as a journalist for a number of years through my 20s. And um, what I found is as a reporter... um, that I would frequently start reading the metaphorical back into the material. And, of course, we do the opposite or the inverse in reading um, literature is reading the metaphorical out to the material. But I think it's just the way that I see the world is whichever direction I'm reading it, I can't read those things separately. And I, in fact, remember the day I decided to go to graduate school um, was um, I was reading the newspaper, and there was an article then. At that time, the Sally Hemings story had just come out about Thomas Jefferson and this other family he had. And um, there was this story about Hemings's um, descendants not being able to go into the cemetery. And I remember reading that and going, oh, that's so symbolic, you know. And then I put down the paper and thought, I think I know I need to go to graduate school. Um, 
so there were these other observations I was having about the interplay between um, literary or cultural uh, practices and the material world. And one was, as a Native American, um, part of my cultural experience just growing up and being around Native people is is um, the ways that people would always be making jokes about federal Indian law. Hmm. And I think I just started noticing over time um, the the power of um, people getting together and joking about the force of um, Indian law. And when I started graduate school, I was really thinking, if we're doing it now, uh, these earlier writers um, who have been a little bit neglected in uh, American Indian literary studies and in American literary studies, that these writers were also talking about the law and turning it over in various ways, um, not only joking about it, but also using its aesthetics and changing its forms. And really that, because everyday life in Native America is so shaped by law, it's only natural that cultural forms and literature would also be shaped and illuminating and pushing back against law. So those were the things I was thinking going into graduate school. And I ended up you know, writing a dissertation and then very um, substantially revising that in, into this book, Domestic Subjects. It's not surprising at all that, um, having read the book, that uh, you have a, a, a sort of lifelong interest in history. It's gender, citizenship, and law. These are themes that historians are, are ceaselessly wrestling with. Um, I guess I'm wondering why you chose literature uh, as a way to explore these, or, or was literature the first move through which you found history, if that makes sense? I guess I'm wondering why you, why you chose to pursue literature as a graduate career as opposed to, say, history. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I do think of my book as literary history. So part of that is um, that there's something interesting, I think, that happens in the intersection between literature and law, in that um, they they make each other... um, um, recognizable in a certain way when you look at them together. I was trying to explain this to some students the other day. There's there's a, a piece by um, Luther Standing Bear in which he writes very lovingly about his father, and this is this takes place in this same period, the um, assimilation period, mm-hmm. in which a lot of government policies were trying to break children away from their attachment to their families and to physically remove them from their families and to sort of push them to attach themselves to the United States. Like, that was the strategy of assimilation. And so Luther Standing Bear writes this beautiful piece about how much he loves his father. So why is that such a politically revolutionary thing to do? Why is it so resistant? Um, politically. He was only saying that he loved his father. So if you only read the piece, it's just without thinking about the law and the history as its context, it's only a piece about a young man who loved his father despite being taken away to boarding school. Mm. But the point at which you can understand the deep politics of what he's doing is when you, you see it as a statement of the failure of the assimilation policy. 
and as a repudiation of the violence of that policy. Um, it wasn't only, I mean, maybe, maybe it is that that love is so incredibly powerful that you can't see its power or understand the dimensions of it without understanding how the federal policies were trying to break that bond apart. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think, I think similarly, or maybe inversely, if you write a book that's just about federal Indian law, like mm-hmm. you know, case by case example, uh, exploration of legislative acts, um, you also don't get the full story that you would if you also talk about you know, a, a son who loves his father. We don't necessarily see that in a in a pure legal history, right? Yeah, because these, if you only look at the laws and the policies, um, and this is particularly where domesticity and sentimentality can obscure violence, mm. um, is around these things like, well, we're going to provide education. Well, that right. seems nurturing and elevating. I think mean, <laughs> it's against education, you know. Right, exactly. It's hard to be against these things that are domestic right. or about domestic subjects. Um, and you know, the other part of literature that is so compelling to me is that it also produces the alternative imaginary, and also shows how the imaginative lives of um, Native people during this very difficult period were also a site was also a site itself of this battle, hmm. um, because the policies wanted Indian people to conceptualize themselves as citizens of the United States and as belonging to a different national body than they were born into. So if we think about Indian nations as being their own sort of national bodies uh, in which these Indian children and families are born into, trying to shift that affiliation meant you have to imagine, you have to conceptualize, and then you have to physically remake yourself in a way that fits this other national identity, mm-hmm. and that that imaginary was a battleground in itself. And so for these writers to produce these alternative imaginaries to make different, to take the storyline and change the ending, to do things like create states of suspension um, rather than foreclosure, all of those were parts of winning that space of the imaginary and I think really helped people survive. Because going into this project, one of my main questions was, how did people survive this violence? I mean, I have children. I just, I, it's almost unbearable to think of them being taken away um, or entire communities that all their children were taken away. Um, and, and for all of those children to have only each other to turn to in their loneliness and alienation in the boarding schools, um, it's just the incredible strength that these people had. And um, to be able to show both the violence of these policies, but also how people survived. Mm. Um, that, that I think, was a, is, was a really important um, goal for me in this book. And literature was a space where we could think about the affective costs and also these points of resilience and the functioning of the imaginary in working through these legal and material conditions that people were in. So this this period um, that you grapple with here in American Indian history um, between 1879, 1934, and those, those mm-hmm. dates are important for different reasons. But this is a period that, that I think for a long time 
beguiled historians. I don't know if that's also true in English and literature, but I was looking back through Phil Deloria's uh, Indians in Unexpected Places. Mm-hmm. And he says, Indian people living between 1890 and 1934 often simply vanish from the master narrative. He said this mm-hmm. after looking at sort of standard history textbooks and even some you know monographs from the profession. I think the, mm-hmm. the past 10 years, um, scholars have worked on rectifying this. I think I'm actually very happy to have featured some of those people on this program, uh, albeit mostly they were historians. But mm-hmm. I'm wondering what attracted you to this period uh, particularly? Yeah. yeah, well, I think that it was exactly this moment of domestication. So I think this um, this reason that um, you're identifying from Phil's wonderful book, um, it has to do with this sense of 1890 and the end of the Indian Wars with the massacre at Wounded Knee. And like, okay, that's done. And that just in the 1890s, there was this huge wave of national domestication. And um, I think that's that's at the point where things get quiet, and get quiet in terms of, like, a military history. And I think what I wanted to do is, is show that these domestic policies, which were administrative, which were things like taking children to school and dividing up Indian lands through allotment. They were administrative policies, but they relied upon that military conquest, and they relied upon a history of violence, and they enacted um, other forms of violence in themselves. And so I think that <clears throat> that there was this sense of military conquest, um, and that, that the Indian Wars were over. And what I'm trying to assert in the book and what other scholars have also asserted is, like, the Indian Wars are not over. And they certainly, I would say, intensified on a different front during this period. And so we can think, well, why... why I, I think that, that, that the domestication of Native peoples fell into this larger domestication, national domestication project. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason, perhaps, that it isn't so sharply focused in a lot of um, historical work, although there is a lot of great work during this time. So I don't want to at all um, obscure that. You have this really, uh, this this quote, if I may, this really wonderfully written book, by the way, but um, the the Calvary man was supplanted or rather supplemented by the field matron, the Hotchkiss by the transit and the prison by the school, a turn to the domestic front, even as the last shots at Wounded Knee echoed in America's collective ear, marked not the end of conquest, but rather its renewal. It's really challenging that sharp periodization that would that would put an end marker and say this is the end of the violence mm-hmm. of colonialism. Um, mm-hmm. It's not at all the case, as you as you very convincingly put it. Um, I want to talk about also uh, you you open the book actually you open every chapter. Uh, with a photograph. Yeah. And as you note, actually, at the outset, uh, this is a very fraught moment for um, for Native people and photographic documentation. Mm-hmm. Maybe it still mm-hmm. is in a lot of ways. But um, you these often served, these were mechanisms of surveillance or ex- exhibition um, and very complicated. And, you know, Phil Deloria talks a lot about photography in mm-hmm. his book as well. Why did you decide to uh, include these photographs? And maybe you can speak about, you know, one or two of them. For instance, you open the book with this image of school children playing with mm-hmm. playing with dolls. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit about the, the photography you chose to include? Yeah. 
Well, that opening image, um, when I found it, I was so excited because um, the photograph is three Nez Perce girls, and they are wearing school uniforms and these um, handmade lace collars. Um, so they, they're probably at a government school, although it's on their reservation. And they're sitting on the grass, and one of them is putting a baby doll into a cradle board that has this beautiful floral beadwork on it. And, you know, one of them is sort of pulling, is making a teepee, and another one is sort of peeking into her teepee at her little doll um, in its bed. And it's such a beautiful idea, and I, and I, I loved it because... The photograph was taken by um, the assistant to the allotment agent. So the photograph was taken by Jane Gay, who accompanied Alice Fletcher, who allotted the Nez Perce Reservation. And the the photograph was produced as part of the allotment process itself. And that was very compelling to me. And also what was compelling to me is just how deeply engaged these girls are in their play. And I saw as they were playing house, basically, and imagining their own babies and their own families and their own communities, that they were imagining an Indian future that had these structures, these traditional structures, both literally and sort of um, culturally, spiritually. Um, And I wanted to argue, and I, I argued this a little bit in the introduction, that these girls playing with the dolls, it's not just representative of the struggle of that time over children and land and homes and futures, but that it is itself the struggle. And to bring the material and metaphorical, they are they are the same in that photograph. Um, and, and that's one of the arguments of the book, um, that these struggles were, were the same and working out mm-hmm. in these really complex ways. So um, <laughs> I found that photograph, and I thought, oh, I want to put this on the cover. But then I heard these stories about, like, sometimes the press doesn't let you use the picture that you took. So I put it inside. You know, I put it in the introduction so that the, the photograph would be there. Of course, Yale was wonderful. They let me do everything that I wanted to do. But that was that's what got me started on the photograph. And um, I ended up – I think it's very – with literary books that if you have photographs in it, there are photographs of the authors. Mm. Um, And in my book, there's only one photograph of one author, and it's uh, Morning Dove that illustrates um, chapter three. And it's a a staged photograph that was part of one of her publicity photographs. And um, so I, I read that image a little bit and talking about her labor as a writer um, and uh, these moments of the, the, the sort of um, uncertainty of the photograph itself. Yeah, it's quite a photograph. Um, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it is. I think all of the photographs are beautiful in different ways, and also they all have... Um, um, they, they all have different moods attached to them. Um, so, let's see... Did you want to ask about another photograph or, or with the interplay of the photos? 
I guess, no, I guess, I mean, I was more curious about why, why you chose to include the ones you did, but, um, but I think I have a sense of that. Um, I wanted to actually, before we, I want to introduce a couple of the authors actually that yeah. you, um, that you talk about, but actually first I'm, I'm hoping to introduce a couple of the terms that you, um, okay. that you bring into this book. Um, you've opted for a term tribal national domestic. How does that mm-hmm. differ from simply speaking of the tribe or the nation? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I was trying to find a space in between those two terms um, because, um, I mean, I, I I tend to be very comfortable saying tribe, mm-hmm. um, but I also think we're talking about national formations and the way in which settler national formations sort of force um, force a, politi- a, a certain ty- type of political identity upon. Um, native polities that aren't necessarily natural to them. Um, and I wanted to make visible that the tribal national domestic is a distinct space that has its own geography and its own boundaries um, and its own sort of conceptual identity, that it is um, a domestic space within this larger national domestic space. Um, in which these two types of national domesticities are overlapping and in competition with each other. And so I try to think about that so that we can think from inside of the tribal national domestic and say, okay, this is the national domestic space for Native people. And the U.S. national domestic is the foreign domestic to us. Right. And that's sort of the perspective that I was trying to create by talking specifically about a tribal national domestic. And I hyphenate tribal national domestic, um, the tribal national part, um, because I don't want to just take the national as a given or as an as a natural formation. And I think it's easy to do when you're trying to assert sovereignty or trying to articulate a set of political rights. But those political rights are only possible because of nationalism, which I think, you know, it's perfectly normal to critique nationalism as a form. And so I think I'm trying to include some space for critique of nationalism or the national as a form within having a space to um, assert some rights from the perspective of a tribal national. Mm. Um, so that's how I, it, it's, terminology is, is, is tricky. Um, mm. so, it's, so I'm going to say I don't think that it's the most elegant solution to that problem. Um, but that's part of, of the political niche we're in, is that there aren't easy terms or easy, easy ways out. Um, things are... Can kind of be awkward. It reminds me of another another point you make. Um, at least when you're talking about the multiple sovereignties or multiple sort of polities, you make a point that that you know there's been this sort of transnational turn, but mm-hmm. that Native American studies already is is inherently a transnational project. Um, I thought that was that was an interesting point. Um, you also sort of. Um, participate. There are there are sort of broader trends in Native American literary studies that you're both mm-hmm. in conversation with, but also, um, you know, shaping in your own way, like American Indian literary nationalism, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe we can talk about a couple of the authors now. I was going to, yeah. and 
as a way to maybe get at, at this idea of entangled consent or entwined consent. Um, mm-hmm. It's particularly drawn out in the first chapter of writings um, where, you, where you look at Pauline Johnson, E. Pauline mm-hmm. Johnson, and John M. Oskison. Am I, am I right mm-hmm. there? I, I know I asked you Oskison. in the pre-interview. Oskison. Mm-hmm. Oskison. Um, can you introduce us uh, to these writers, maybe talk a bit about what drew you to their work, but then talk a bit about uh, entangled consent, entwined consent. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, so I, I, when I discovered Pauline Johnson, it was so wonderful. I love teaching her in my classes. She was, um, she was born in Brantford, um, Ontario, and her father was a Mohawk leader, and her mother was British um, from the Howells family. Um, she's she's actually distantly related to um, William Dean Howells, the um, writer. And she grew up. She be, became a writer, and she wrote this wonderful story called a red. She wrote. She was a very prolific writer, and she wrote in many genres. And one of the reasons I'm really attracted to the writers of this period is because. They all wrote in multiple genres. They wrote fiction, nonfiction, journalism, short stories, novels. You know, they did they did everything. It's it's wonderful, and they were very politically active in different ways. They gave speeches. Um, they don't. They didn't confine themselves. They like all writing counted. Um, and so she wrote uh, very prolifically throughout her life, and she wrote plays and performed plays, and so. You know, a number of years ago, I came across a collection of her short stories, and I was really drawn to this story, A Red Girl's Reasoning. And, you know, it's about an inter- interracial marriage between an Indian woman and um, a Canadian uh, man, a white man. And um, he sort of meets her on the reserve, and they fall in love, they get married, they go to the city. One night at a ball, um, some people are asking her about her family, and her father had been um, a trader, so he was white, settler, and her mother was native. And so they said, oh, did your parents get married by the priest? And she said, no. And they said, oh, well, then did they get married by the magistrate? And she said, no, they were married by Indian rights. And this moment at this ball creates this incredible scandal because um, the, the story came out in 1892, and it was incredibly popular in Canada when it came out in Dominion Magazine. It won an award, in fact. And um, anyway, back to the moment at the ball. There's this big scandal, um, and uh, Charlie, the husband, gets very upset. And he leaves, and he sends her home. Later that night, they have a big argument. And in their argument, they are talking about rights, R-I-T-E-S, about marriage rights. But it actually very quickly morphs into and overlaps with a conversation about political rights. And um, eventually, she uh, says, you know, if, if... you know, you're saying that my parents were never married because they got married by Indian rights. And she said, but I was married to you in a church, and you are not married to me in Indian rights. So if their marriage doesn't count, then our marriage doesn't either. And she takes her ring off and throws it across the room and says, that 
ring is as empty to me as Indian rights are to you. Mm. And this whole time they're talking about our ITES, but of course, where do those rights come from? Is from the, the state, from the establishment of like what counts as political rights. Um, what does marriage mean? What kinds of attachments and property rights do you have out of that? Um, so, to quickly summarize this story, she. Uh, he he leaves because he's angry, um, and he goes to walk off his anger. When he comes back, she's gone. She's left him during the night, and um, he follows her for a long time. He tries to find her. He eventually finds her in this other town. He throws himself down before her, says, I, you know, I didn't understand. I'm sorry. Please take me back. And she says, no. Mm-hmm. And it's such a wonderful story. And in the very end of the story, he goes back to his hotel room. He's totally distraught. He throws himself on his bed and says, God, you know, why have you forsaken me? I I feel, you know, I don't even have you tonight. And the very end of the story is is his dog licking his sleeve. (laughs) It's so, so sad. Okay, so this is, I mean, to me, this is an amazing story to happen in, like, 1892, or just really any time, you know? It is, and and you say it found a wide audience among non-Native Canadians. Wow. Right. Well, you know, and I think part of that had to do with Canada's relationship to England, um, and a sense of of standing, of, of, like, Canadian, I mean, that's, that's what some people sort of made of that story, but it's also just a wonderful story of sort of the sure. plucky heroine rejecting, and so she, she, this works on multiple scales because it rejects what's happening in the genre of sentimental fiction where, you know, the, um, there's a happy resolution, right, that's domestic and, mm. and the, the plucky heroine comes through and ends up happy. But in this story, both figures end up heartbroken for different reasons. And the reason why this story becomes very interesting when you look at the law is um, because it does it does show the ways that law racializes different subjects. And what it also shows is the way that the law can um, can name specific subjects, but all state subjects are within its grasp. So Charlie, who is should be the most secure subject under the Canadian legal system, the the white man. Um, He's the one who is destroyed, essentially, by the Indian Act. So the Indian Act only names the effects upon Indians. But by, by putting the law and the literature together, you can see that the the law stratify, is stratified in ways that even the unnamed subjects can come under its force and under its damage. So in the end, both figures suffer losses, and they suffer, suffer these losses unequally. But Charlie's not outside of the Indian Act, as if you read the law by itself, you would see that it was. Okay, so I found the story, and I realized... Um, there were all these amazing dimensions in the story, and um, I, I would just want everybody to read her stories. Um, and in that, you know, one of the things I wanted to bring out about um, these writers is that they worked in conventions, 
But to make these political arguments, they had to bend the conventions of the genre. And that's where law actually has an effect on aesthetics. So, you know, the, the, the limits of law also turn into the limits of aesthetics. So if I could just use one other example from the book, this yep, comes out more powerfully in the, the discussion of, in the second chapter on adoption. Right. And this, again, is looking at a short story by Pauline Johnson along with a sentimental novel by um, Alice um, Callahan. Right. Yes, Wynema. And um, so there are two sort of contexts um, thinking about this book. And... One of them is that at this time, Indian women and all Indian adults are wards. They 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 are they don't have full personhood under the state, um, and so even as a mother, you're still a ward. And during this time, there's a lot of activism by um, white women who also do not have full citizenship rights, but find uh, their place in the public sphere by advocating for the rights of working class women or African Americans or Native Americans. And so these uh, sort of, I, I come up with this idea of tiered maternalism to sort of reflect the relationship between white women who found a place in the public sphere by becoming the quote mothers to Indian mothers. Um, because uh, th- there's this logical um, impossibility of wardship and maternity. So that's one context. And then the other context is um, that this was a time in which sentimental motherhood, which was so dominant in um, literary works, uh, in mainstream literary works, um, that was an impossibility in thinking about um, Native women because... Um, Native women were either sort of in policy and in sort of popular culture conceptualized as drudges or as very promiscuous, as having a sexuality that needed to be contained. And, you know, one of the dominant laws at that time of this period was the the removal of Indian children from their families and this uh, legal and um, social construct of Indian women as incompetent. And so there's this whole scale of impossibility around the idea of a competent, loving, maternal Indian woman. And so one of the things that literature is able to do is to make a thinkable subject. So if the subject can exist in literature, then it can exist in the culture, and then it can exist in law. And basically, the sentimental mother that was Indian, who was Indian, was not conceivable under the law or under the culture at that time. And these writers helped make it happen. Um, and the way that they helped make it happen is by coming up to a sol- coming up with a solution to this problem that Indian women were seen as incompetent mothers, as drudges, or as being sexually promiscuous, and that was through the trope of adoption. So then, these stories feature Indian mothers who adopt 
their children, sometimes intertribally and sometimes interracially. So Pauline Johnson's story is about an, an Indian mother who adopts a white child. And so then you have access to the language of maternity without the sort of danger or call of containment against women's sexuality. Okay, so that's a great solution in one way, but then its limitations are that Indian women's agency and Indian women's sexuality has to be repressed. So we have to look at that too, as that was a cost of having access to the language of and the ideas of um, maternalism that were so dominant in the social reform era of that time and in the literary works. Mm-hmm. You, you actually, in that second chapter, you start... Um or early in the second chapter, at least, you, you quoted length from this report by uh, Reverend J.J. Garrett, which I think really yeah. illustrates that. I mean, so so the, the report, basically, I mean, J.J. Garrett is this person who's dispatched by uh, the very misnamed Indian Rights Association, mm-hmm. um, which I encourage people to go back a few interviews. We had an author who's talking about, about them. Um, but... He's there essentially to to abduct her child. Uh, yeah. uh, what he would view as this benevolent ge- educational gesture, and and in in resisting this, I mean, there are different ways in which in this little vignette you you see this family um, trying to resist this abduction. I mean, the mother goes as far to draw her own blood. Um, yeah. But Garrett is completely undeterred. And you write that this episode suggests how difficult it was for Indian families to harness this force of sentiment and shift the imperatives of child removal policies. You even actually go so far in the opening of this chapter to say that sentiment drove Indian policy. Mm-hmm. What do you What do you mean by that? Well, I think it, it you know just it plugs back into this idea of domesticity and um, that it was working in different registers and sentiment and domesticity are very deeply intertwined and um, you know Laura Wexler has done an incredible work around this uh, idea um, that when you um, when you have these nurturing ideas of education and um, national domestication in which there's a hearth and a home and peace and this perfect alignment between the, the personal property and the personal home and uh, belonging to the state, that all of those um, ideas occlude and um, uh, push away the possible violences that are necessary for those things to exist. And so with, under the language of of sentimental ideas of home and hearth and nurturing and uplift, um, these very violent policies could be enacted. Um, By making the white middle-class homes of the apex of civilization and then refusing to accept and, and violently eradicating all other forms of kinship and homemaking and child rearing and uh, just emotional affiliation. Um, you know, those are very violent uh, ruptures um, that are made possible by by the language of sentimentality and by the language of domesticity and domestication. Um, and so the Indian Rights Association, they were humanitarian in the sense that given the 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 previous you know calls for Indian extinction 
they considered themselves humanitarian because they said, well, we only want to change Indians. We don't want to kill them. Um, but in fact, their policies did try to kill the Indian culturally right. and spiritually um, in, the, in terms of their Indian selves. Um, and that's what, what so many cultural actors, um, artists, um, leaders, writers, you know, were fighting to articulate that Indian self that was under um, assault. And you see it very dramatically in these works by these writers at this time. Hmm. So I think probably the best known author that you um, discuss is Darcy McNichol. Um, mm-hmm. and the Surrounded is a, is a book that often finds its way on, on uh, literature lists at colleges, even not necessarily in, in Native American studies, though most often in, in Native mm-hmm. literary classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you want to bring to this discussion of, of Darcy McNichol? And, and mm-hmm. what do you mean by d- disciplinary paternalism? Oh, yes. Okay, so um, again, I think that um, within this larger rubric of um, domestication and domesticity, that the guardian wardship structure of um, Indian and um, federal affairs was that the language of benevolent paternalism has been taken for granted, even when people put it in quotation marks, like benevolent paternalism. Um, I felt that we actually needed a different term to think about what was going on. Um, and because in the writing, in the writings of the Indian Rights um, Association activists themselves, you know, they understood and they articulated a plan that would hurt Indians. They knew that their policies would be painful um, and that they knew their policies were violent. Um, but they believed that it was for the Indians' own good. And that's a sense of sort of parental disciplinary approach that, like, well, this is going to hurt, but it's going to be for your own good, that was acceptable. I was looking for a term that would be acceptable to um, the, the, the actors themselves. Um, and because I, I think they... I think that benevolent paternalism just lets too many things slide through its fingers. <laughs> you know, it's, it's too loose of a term. Right. I think to be more specific, um, they knew what they were doing, and it was disciplinary, and these policies are disciplinary, and we still have the, the structure of, of disciplinary paternalism um, when we look at um, unincorporated territories and you know, still even in Native contexts. We have that um, to this day. That's that's the structure of our relationship to the federal government. It's disciplinary. It's not benevolent. And I just wanted a sharper term for naming that. Sure. And in talking about the the surrounded, which features the the, the cornerstone relationship is between our shield, the son, and his um, father. Um, that's a really important relationship. But what I bring to you this reading of this. Um, wonderful masterpiece of a novel um, is I talk about the the women characters um, Elise, particularly Elise which is the girlfriend and Catherine, the mother and the ways in which their trajectories and their storylines give a critique of the type of agency that is available under the um, our liberal rights system um, and, and I think that's one piece that I think has has been under-examined. In a, there's a great deal of, liter- of um, analysis of this 
you know, amazing book. And um, I felt like their part in the book really needs some close analysis and understanding how agency and autonomy and action were sort of working at different registers throughout the book. And I think thinking of them is, is very useful for understanding the book. What do you see as the, the legacy of, of these writers? I know that's kind of a broad question, um, but you know, what do you see as the sort of long-term impact uh, of people like Darcy McNichol or, or Pauline Johnson or, or any of the mm-hmm. folks you raise here? Yeah. Well, one thing is, um, you know, their stories are, you know, they were gifted writers as a as a group, and um, you know, their their work hold up to time because um, because they they were good at their craft. So that's one thing. Like they just produced good literature. Um, I think what you know, as a literary history project, what what I would like to emphasize about what I think is lasting about their work is is their politics in their contexts and how brave they were and how visionary in terms of being able to engage the politics of their day and so um, with such nuance and force be able to turn these plots around to imagine other plots, to be able to bend the genres the way they were able to do, to make a space for Native voices and Native political identities that were not conceptualized anywhere else. They were unthinkable under the law. They were unthinkable in the mainstream literary genres. They had to create a new space for you know, Native histories and experiences to live in. And I think that's really a lasting legacy. And I don't, you know, I think that, you know, I do think that historical specificity is very important to me. And so I want to understand, you know, that there's, um, there's a relationship between early writers and later writers. But I think the relationship is that they all spoke to the politics of their time and they all did it in ways that made made the most sense for where they were. And so some things, I mean, I, I was frustrated because I think that, that um, some schools of thought don't recognize the politics of the writers of this time. Um, and I, I think we need to make those politics very clear and very legible because they're different politics than we have now. And it's partly because the material conditions and the legal conditions were different. So what was thinkable or possible during that time is different than what's thinkable or possible now. Um, and I think we really need to, to, to be in awe and to honor these uh, writers um, for what they were able to do in their times. And also, you know, just back to the state fact that, that you know, works like Van Nichols, you know, that would hold up in any era, you know. It's just brilliant writing. Mm-hmm. So um, despite how historically specific in a lot of ways these works are, you do, uh, at least in the in the conclusion, um, mm-hmm. hint at, at at least some of the themes that we can still see play out today. I mean, we're, mm-hmm. you talk particularly about 
um, immigration reform, and that's in the news a lot right now, particularly you draw out this idea of biometric testing, this m- monitoring system. What do you think we can we can learn from the period you discuss in this book that might help us complicate um, some of the terms of engagement on, on issues like immigration or, or even marriage? Yeah. Well, this is very much a, a book about citizenship, and that's one of the 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 things that's really interesting about this assimilation period for Native people is that it is tracking and producing um, the shift from domestic subject, which was the legal designation of Native people, to um, citizen. And so we can see how these ideas of what a U.S. citizen is gets worked out on the bodies and on the imaginaries of Native people. And that has relevance to everyone today. It has relevance for all state subjects. And also, um, you know, just I think that the history of, of Indian citizenship is often thought of as being irrelevant or somehow outside of the dominant narrative of immigration and integration um, into U.S. society. Um, But the thing about looking at the Native experience during this time is that there were very specific taxonomies and very specific modes of behavior and labor and um, uh, racial composition um, that were expected of um, of American citizens, and that they are very clearly articulated during this period in ways that they are not so clearly articulated um, today. So just to draw a line between, you know, some of the things that I discuss in, in Chapter 3 around a performative taxonomy of citizenship, you know, there were these competency commissions that would go out and and visit Indian homes and decide whether the people there were fit to be citizens. And they had this set of measurements where they would say, how much Indian blood do they have? So there's a biometric measure. Um, Do they speak English? Uh, Have they been to school? Are they sober? Are they married? How many children do they have? They would measure the barns. They would measure the barns, like how many square feet is their barn. Um, They would talk about their crops. They would say how many harnesses they had. Inside of the house, they would count, is there a telephone? Is there a piano? Uh, All of these things would add up to this person is fit or not to be a citizen. Is this woman a good housekeeper? These are all parts of of the way that citizenship, U.S. citizenship, Mm -hmm. was defined. What we have today in the language of the DREAM Act is that if someone is of good moral character, um, and that, I think, is how do we know what that is? Somehow it's known, and it's known through these racialized um, histories of citizenship and thinking not only about um, Native American experience, but also Asian exclusion and different moments of um, where where these definitions and these sort of taken for granted ideas about what a citizen is get worked out in very explicit and embodied ways. Um, so that's that's what I think the relevance is um, today. I'm reminded of uh, you know, I have friends who uh, are undocumented activists, and they are often incredibly 
uncomfortable, if not outraged, at the way uh, parents, um, you have a discourse in politics, and, and liberals do this very much so, too, where the DREAM Act is framed in a way where while the children are, are deserving subjects, it's their parents that committed the crime. You know, right. there's no, you know, these children, it's no fault their parents. No fault you know, of their own. No fault exactly. of their own. Implicit in that is that the parents have done something really heinous and reprehensible. Right. Right, and that language, so, you know, again, I would say this is something, one of the questions that Margaret Jacobs, who is uh, amazing um, historian, her work really um, impacted me on this discussion about the removal of Indian children, is that, is that the assumption was that all Indian parents were incompetent, where child removal would happen selectively among other populations, say poor working class women in the cities, then the welfare agencies would come in and remove their children. Mm-hmm. That was a case by case basis. But in the case of Indian child removal, the um, assumption was all Indian parents. And you have the exact same idea about um, uh, these young immigrants who came to the United States, quote, through no fault of their own, right? They were innocent. Their parents were not only uh, um, criminals against the state, but against their own children. Right, right. And that exact discourse, it's the same. We should be thinking about the relationship between these things. I was also, I thought that what you drew out very briefly was incredibly stark about the the relationship between the language of blood quantum uh, in determining Indian status uh, in this period that your book is about and and this biometric testing, this idea that you can kind of pinpoint or uh, mark blood in a way that Mm -hmm. allows you to cross borders or not cross Mm -hmm. borders. Uh, Mm -hmm. That language and metaphor of blood uh, seems to be one that's resilient in American culture and politics. Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, It's still there. Um, So I've been speaking with Beth Piatote. She's the author of Domestic Subjects, Gender, Citizenship, and Law in Native American Literature. It's just released from Yale University Press. And as I said at the outset, it's the first book published in the newly inaugurated, now inaugurated, Henry Rowe Cloud series on American Indian and modernity. Uh, I know that this wonderful project just came to fruition. I always feel a little bit bad after what must have been a very exhausting process to ask, uh, what are you doing next? Uh, but I nevertheless find that I like to ask it. So uh, now, that, now that you're done with this one, um, uh, what are you thinking yeah. about next? And uh, well, when can we have you back no. on the program? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking um, to you. And I have two projects I'm working on right now. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that I am Nez Perce, and I've been working in the Nez Perce language for about 10 years. And uh, right now I'm involved in a collaboration with the linguistics department here at UC Berkeley um, to create an audio dictionary of the Nez Perce language. So that's um, a big project I'm working on. I'm also working on some translations from Nez Perce um, in um, into English. Um, so that's, I sort of have a translation project. And then my next sort of um, law culture project is um, I want to do a, um, a project on um, the 
uh, I, I can't get away from the surrounded because mm-hmm. I love it so much. Mm-hmm. So I want to do, uh, I want to look at sound and sovereignty in the surrounded mm-hmm. and in a couple other novels and the ways there. There are artic- political articulations through sound, through drumming and singing, and through sort of atemporal responses and and things like this. Um, particularly because sound has this ability to to create different borders than um, than than the geopolitical borders that are operating in a book like *The Surrounded*. So. Those are some things that I'm kind of tinkering around with right now. That is fascinating and exciting. So looking forward to that. Um, Beth Biato, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Andrew. That was Beth H. Piatote, author of Domestic Subjects, Gender, Citizenship, and Law in Native American Literature, and this is New Books in Native American Studies. You can find us on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com, where you can listen to all the past interviews free of charge, or on iTunes, where you can subscribe and download to the podcast. We're also on Facebook, where you can leave comments, questions, or suggestions for new books you'd like to hear on this program. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein. Thanks for listening.